appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. And if you have a Bible, Mark 8 would be a good place for you to be. We're going to have all these passages up on the screen for you as well. Today is going to be a little different, okay. Every pastor has a certain format and a way that they're used to communicating. Um, this is going to be a little different for me today. My hope is to introduce something that's going to be very new for many of you. Not a typical sermon style, um, but I, I think a little variety in the playlist is kind of good from time to time. In fact, I'm pretty sure that today is going to cause some fights in the room with you and your spouse and your family. I'm okay with that, right? Maybe a robust discussion here or there. Um, I've told people before, I think fighting to the glory of God is good for a marriage. I think it's those that do not fight and do not have deep and heavy conversations. Those are the marriages and families that are in trouble. Um, that's where it gets unhealthy. But I want to talk about your family's direction today. What is your family supposed to be up to? Right? And then when I say family, I realize I'm talking to some of you who are just couples. Right? Some of you, you have... 50 kids, I don't know. Some of you, you are single, but you're looking to build a family. Some of you are single, and you don't feel the call to be one that's building a family, but you're in a missional community. We're all going to have a little bit of a different shape to us. But what is your family supposed to be up to, right? See, and I know probably some of you are thinking, really none of your business, Luke, what my family is supposed to be up to. But, but we did make the case last week that our families are the church's business, Right? You can always go back and listen last week if you don't remember that. But my family is your business. My marriage is your business. Because we are all tied together into a bigger family by the blood of Jesus. All of us are. We're all connected together. So your family's direction, purpose, mission, that is mission critical for a healthy church. It's important for a healthy church. Right? Now when it comes to your family's mission... If I were to say, what is your mission? I know what the right answer is, just like you do. You're going to substitute in the Great Commission there because that's just the answer, right? Well, it's to make disciples, right, Luke? It's what it says in Matthew, to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples that will make disciples and enjoy Jesus and make leaders for all arenas of life. And sure, that's true. That's true. But if we break it down to a more granular level, what, where is your family different than the one next to you? If we could just be more specific what has God called your family to be up to different than the family next to you? And if you're single, how does that look? How specifically does your direction and purpose affect future decisions that you will make? Because they should. One of the things I've recently started having new couples or even pre-marrieds do is maybe draft out or consider how they are different than other couples how their marriage is going to be different, how they're called to do something different. We've all been given different aspirations and different ambitions. We've all been given different limitations and talents and gifts and things like that. We're all a little bit different. I mean, some of the things that ruin you, although you fit in the same great commission as the people next to you, some of the things that might ruin you might not ruin them, right? 
me and my bride, we have some convictions and some resolves and some missions and some goals in our mind that might bore you, right? Might, might last about two minutes in a conversation. And you might have some things that you're super passionate in that I'm probably a little less passionate in. Listen, this is why it's okay. By the way, let me take some shame off of you. That's why it's okay to be talking to somebody that is just sold out to Asia or something like that. And all they can do is talk about Asia. Do you ever walk away from those conversations feeling like, gosh, I don't really love Asia that much? Right? I mean, I don't hate Asia, but should I feel like they do about Asia? No, probably not. You probably have something in your life that you get all geeked out about that they look at and they think it's good, but they're not as sold out as you are, right? That's because God has made us a little bit differently. You can appreciate the need of God's spirit in something without being and matching everyone else's excitement level on it. And not just what you're called to. Not just what your purpose is, not just what your mission is as a family, but what values do you have as a family? Of all the valuable things, hospitality, creativity, evangelism, teaching, whatever it is, all of the values that we have, what will mark how your family makes decisions? What marks, what helps you decide what to say no to or what to say yes to when all the options look pretty much the same, right? See, these are some neglected questions when it comes to families. I'm going to put some up on the screen. These are six of what I would call neglected family questions, right? What is our mission or purpose? What is valuable to us? What will we put down to get to our goals? What will we pick up to get to our goals? How hard will we strain and what if we fail? Listen, don't worry about writing these down. I have them all on a blog post. It's sitting right on the bottom of our front page of our website, LegacyKnoxville.com. You can go there because underneath all of these are about three or four ancillary questions that could help give flesh to it. It's just a guide for you to have some really purpose-driven, I guess, heavy, robust conversations with your family. These are questions we just don't ask. And if you're not asking questions like this as an individual, you risk living without direction. If you aren't asking questions like this as a family, you risk living without direction as a family. It's like, if, it's like Google Maps, right? Where if you've ever used the app, sometimes it starts you off and you are so zoomed in, you have no idea where you're at, right? You kind of have to kind of pinch it out and zoom out just to get some context of where am I at? I mean, it just shows a, a big blue dot and I don't even know where I'm at. It, but if you don't zoom out, you don't really know where you're at and you don't really know where you're trying to go. There's no blue dot that makes sense, no red dot destination that makes sense. And if that's the case, any turn works. Any direction will get you there. There's no such thing as a wrong turn. You won't even know if you're moving forward. You won't know how to interpret a win, what a loss looks like. Listen, as a family, you can be busy. As a family, you can be productive. But to what end if you're doing it in the wrong direction? <laughs> to what end? So praying over questions like those, asking those, fasting, journaling, having more conversations as a family will keep you from building a family that's rolling around the same cul-de-sac, doing the same thing everyone else is doing for the same boringly predictable reasons that you probably couldn't even produce if someone asked you. It helps you from having that kind of a life. 
And some of you are asking, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having a family with, with a lack of direction, maybe a more aimless family? Is it a sin, Luke? I'd say it's a stewardship issue. I would call it squarely a stewardship issue because without direction, you're just idling, spinning your tires, which means you're misspending your energy, your time, your talent, your treasure. It's also ignoring that God has specifically called and gifted you for certain kinds of roles and certain kinds of ministries. This is, this is how you see Paul interacting with the young Corinthian church when he says, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts that you may serve each other. Eagerly desire roles, ministries that you could be helpful. And we're all unique in that. We're all specifically gifted and talented and called in such a way that we fit together and build a beautiful house. To pretend that that's not the truth is, is really just to sit and idle, right? And just be seat number 321 for the next 30 years. And then I guess cash out at the end of it all. I'm not even sure. So as we begin this series on reclaiming family, and I realize we're in the second week of this, I want to see how the Bible leads you and me to develop direction. To develop direction. And again, I know this is a little bit of a different sermon. It's more of a teaching probably than a preaching in all honesty. But I think it's valuable for us if we're going to build his families. So I want to start off at the very top. We're going to move through it quickly. But how aware are you as to where you're at and where you want to go as a family? Your blue dot and your red dot, right? Where you're at and where you want to go. We, we just finished the book of Nehemiah in our men's Bible study, um, which was really good. I'm looking forward to the next book we're going to go through. It's likely going to be Philippians and had a great time going through that. Now, earlier when we were trucking through the book of Nehemiah, we get to chapter 2 and we see Nehemiah imported into a broken city, but he has a vision and a dream. He knows where the red dot is in his head. He just doesn't know what the blue dot looks like. And so this is what it says about him. And we're going to put it up on the screen for you, so stay where you're at. Nehemiah 2, chapter 2, verse 11. It says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected that wall, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. This is what he's doing. He's like, all right, what's the situation? I know why I'm here. God's given me a vision of what I'm supposed to do. He's given me a mission. He's given me a, a solid goal. But, I mean, I got to kind of get a state of the union and see what the city really looks like before I start recruiting buy-in, before I start calling people to sacrifice. I need to know what things look like. So for you, do you know what that looks like for your family? The burned stones, the falling gates, the cost that it's going to take to build a family. What damage are you going to have to contend with? Where are the points of resistance? These are questions that are going to require, and as homework, it's going to require some time. And this is where the fights come from sometimes, right? I mean, your idea of where the red dot is, not always where your spouse's is. Not always. Spend time reflecting on where God has you as a family. Consider what is at your disposal, your gifts, your talents, your limiters, your passions. And it's only after you know where you are that it's going to be sensible to know how to get to 
where you're going. Nehemiah, he entered this city with a vision, but he began by assessing where he was. And as you see what's around you, what is it that God has put on your heart? What is the goal? What is the mission for your family, right? This also is going to require great prayer and time. What does your family major on? As, as I tell some of our missional community leaders, what, what do you guys talk about when you're not talking about anything? What do you dream about? What do you easily sacrifice for? What would others say about your family's passion? Right? In other words, where is the red dot on the map for your family? For your family. These conversations take time and fighting and prayer and journaling and more talk and more prayer and fasting. It is what stewardship done well looks like. Stewardship. And listen, if you're single, same thing. If your red dot on the map is fostering kiddos and your future spouse has no taste for that, hit pause, reconsider, have hard conversations, right? If you want to be a missionary to China and your girlfriend wants the suburbs, reconsider, second guess it, have some hard talks. And then when you've done the hard work that we've described, even to this point right here, can you at least agree with your family on a broad statement? We as a family are about this. It doesn't have to be anything that's like codified with perfect language, under nine words, and has an action verb in there, which is what they'll teach you in some schools on how to build a mission statement. It just needs to be, what, 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 are, you, what are you about as a family? We are here to do this. That's, this is what businesses and churches and, and ministries will call a mission statement, right? You hear it all the time. And on top of that, what, what does the red dot look like for you? This is where we're going as a family. As a family, this is what I want things to look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years. This is what churches and ministries and businesses call a vision statement. Listen, there's also something called a value statement. These are the things we consider valuable. Lots of valuable things in this room. But the three values that you probably find at the top of the heap are likely going to be very different than the three values on the people that are super cool and love Jesus right next to you, Right? You might have creativity in yours, and they might not. They might have evangelism in yours, and you might not. It's going to be different. What do we value? And then as we're working through that, what will you do to get there? This is more strategy. What will you do to get there as a family? In other words, what will you put down and what will you pick up? And here is where we will find ourselves sinking down to where we find ourselves most in need of Jesus and his gospel story to us. This is where there's a lot of gospel displacement. Mark 8, where you're likely at right now in your Bible, says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right Now, we know what this means for an individual, but what does it mean for your family? Okay, here's a big struggle that I have with this passage. It's probably the same one you instantly have with this passage. It's telling us to put something down. It's telling us to deny ourselves, right? Putting down the authority that we've carried over our own personal ambitions, our own personal aspirations, whenever they are contrary to our callings. It's husband, father, wife, mother, wherever it runs against the grain, right? See, for the Romans who perfected death by the cross, the cross was a demonstration of mastery. 
Some of you probably didn't know this, but that's one of the things that they, that was their logo of mastery. It's a way of saying that this criminal who is carrying the symbol of Rome's mastery over the rebellion, right? Jesus wasn't the first person to carry a cross. It was Rome's way of saying, this person used to kick against authority. Now they're carrying it. Now they're submitting underneath it. That was their idea behind it. So for the Romans, it demonstrates triumph over rebellion. But this is the beauty, and you can already see that I was coming right there. You can see this a mile away. The beautiful irony of this is when Jesus carried a cross, it wasn't Rome triumphing. It was you. It was you. When Jesus died as a rebel under the law, it was for our rebellion, not his. So for us, bearing a cross, picking up a cross, it doesn't mean doing without something that we really, really, really want so we're going to be miserable. It means getting so much more. That's the point of a passage like that. In fact, he says it a little bit differently in John 12, same, same orbit where he says this in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Well, just think about that. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. This passage is requiring self-denial in the most fundamental area for us all. And that is individuality. Personal ambitions and aspirations over all else. That's what it's asking for. When it says life, lose your life right there, it's not talking about bios, blood vessels and bone marrow. It's not talking about the matter that makes us up. It's talking about the, the word there is psyche. It's the part of us that feels, that hopes, that creates, that hungers for it, that has ambition. That's what it's saying we put down. We put that down. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, another struggle there, though. The struggle in all of us that says, yeah, but what about me? What about me? You ever catch yourself, by the way, as a mom, having to give up something, say, what about me? Husbands, don't have the spare time you used to have. What about me? It's the common question, right? I have ambitions and plans and goals and desires. Some of them really good. What about me? Right now, if you are hesitant to lose your life and personal ambitions, you don't want God to mess everything up in your life, you've stopped being a steward and you've pretended to be an owner. It's what we call theft. It's what we call theft. And I know stewardship sounds so oppressive if you don't see the beauty of God in it. Stewardship looks like it's just gruesome or disappointing or full of life if you don't see the beauty of God in it. Well, I guess I'll just be a monk then, Luke, all right? I guess I'll just sell all my stuff and wear boring clothes from Target, never go on vacations, never have a hobby. I guess I'll give all my money away and be poor. We'll get rid of the TVs, Luke, if that's what, I, I, that's what it will sound like if you don't have a view of the beauty of God. He is leading us to see that he is not oppressive and inconsiderate, but the opposite. But the opposite. Now, why is this lesson in denial, self-denial, so important for us when we talk about family? It's because when we think of the good of family, it will require truckloads of self-denial. Truckloads of it. It's the shape of Jesus who denied himself for the better of his family. For the better of his family. And to the level that your individuality is submitted to the cross, 
you'll be helpful for your family. But to the level that you keep this life here as primary, you will stop being helpful for your family. I'm mystified and inspired by so many moms who were just the titans of industry, led boardrooms, highly competent, putting it down so they could be with their kids, right? I love seeing that. It's inspiring to me. It's them saying, not me first, them first. They're picking up a cross and their individuality is put down. I see the opposite when dads leave the home. Maybe they're just leaving a single mom uh, with their kid. Maybe they're leaving their family so they could be involved in like an addiction or a hobby that they could just get lost in. And what they're saying is the opposite, me first. No cross is picked up and individuality is maintained. See the opposite. Any discussion aimed at the purpose and the direction of your family, you need to count on self-denial being a major component in those conversations. You will have to abandon any preferences where they prop you up over the good of your own family. So whenever you have these homework questions that you're looking at with your family, where is individuality bumping into the family's direction? Where is it going to be a problem? To get to the red dot on your map, what will you have to put down? What will it look like for you to pick up the cross? What will it look like? And then how hard will we need to fight for this as we're working through this set of questions? How hard, right? I think Philippians 3 is still my favorite passage for this. And we looked at this a little bit. We did not teach it last week. We just looked at it last week. We're probably going to teach it this week. Philippians 3, verse 12. You can stay where you're at. Paul says to another church, a very young one, says, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, the Christian life is a, is a life that's pressing forward. A Christian church is a church that's pressing forward. Now let me just say it. A Christian family is a Christian family that is straining and pressing forward forward. Now, I always imagine Paul to be an athlete or a wannabe athlete or a has-been athlete, but I imagine Paul in my mind probably being involved in the conversations of who's going to be our starting quarterback, probably didn't look stupid at top golf, right? I think he was just at least attracted to the thing of athletics. And it's also important to know that he's talking to a people that had a high IQ for sports. Here in this Philippi region is where the Olympics were generated. He's talking to people that loved it. These are people that were used to seeing runners run and stretch and strain and reach for some sort of a finish line so that they could stand on a podium and get a prize. You see, that's what would have happened back then. There was always an announcer. It was a sacred class of official back then, not like the other officials in their games. There was one set of officials that whenever somebody would win a race, the official would announce that person's name, their father's name, the country they're from, escort them to a podium that they would stand on, and then they would hand them a wreath to signify peace. Not too different from what we do today when you think about it, right? Your name, your country's flag comes down some national anthem you've never heard before. They come up, they give them a thing of flowers or a wreath or something. A lot of things don't change very much, right? But this upward call, what he's pointing to there is the call of that announcer bringing the athlete up 
onto the podium. The upward call for us is to be called up to get a prize. Not peace through a branch, but peace through a cross. And our prize is this knowledge and experience and depth of closeness with God himself. It's more God. Our prize. More God. That's the gospel picture in this passage is that you and I stand on a podium to win a prize we didn't win for a performance we didn't turn in. And yet we're there and we have peace. We have peace. Or as J.B. Phillips says, we're grasping ever more firmly that purpose for which Christ grasped us. Listen, if that sounds anticlimactic to you, it's because I think you've probably yet to realize that the greatest thing your soul can experience is more God. That's the greatest thing your soul can ever come into contact with is increasing measures of God. It's the greatest thing for your family too. It's the greatest thing for your marriage. More God. Closer proximity to God. Deeper understanding of God. Higher fluency in the gospel. A depth of appreciation for what God has done. That's the best thing for us. It's the best thing for me. It's the best thing for you. More experience with God. And although this is unattainable on this side of eternity to have it perfect, Paul is least saying, I'm straining forward to get it now. I'm reaching as if I could get it now, today. Why did he say that? It's because he knows this is where his soul is happiest, is where God is most celebrated in his life. So how does that strain in a forward direction, leaving the past behind you, how does that inform our marriages and our families, right? It's a good question. It requires focus and intentionality. And it's going to take focus to drive your family to Jesus. Intentional consistency to drive your marriage to Jesus. For us to forget what used to define us. And look forward to the one who has grasped us as we grasp for him. It means resolve with a dogged determination. When we talk about the word resolve, one of the things that Dr. Clint said in one of our Bible studies is that resolve doesn't sound like it has a whole lot of wiggle room in it. And it does not. He's right. Listen, I've been to hundreds of competitive events, either as a parent or a coach or an athlete. And if you add practices, you could easily make it thousands, literally. And my favorite part of any of those moments is the strain. I could care less who wins. It's the strain. I love it. Total focus. The control, and yet total uncontrol. No control at all. The desperation. The emptying out of the athlete. It's when, when I used to coach, I called it the stewardship of pain. The management of pain. High schoolers never appreciated that near as much as I did, stewarding their pain for them. But I love, that's my favorite part. You can see what strain looks like because it can't hide. It's incredible. It's, it's obvious. It just comes out. And it requires a resolve. Let me just say it this way. It's the opposite of being accidental. It's the opposite of being haphazard. If as a family unit, you are roving around the same cul-de-sac accidentally, you can't pretend you're resolved. Resolve says we can't do what everyone else can do. We can't. We must do what few others will. Resolve is the fact that our mission will demand sacrifice, inconsistency, and none of that is going to come by accident. None of it is. 
Some of us in this room, as John Piper would say, are in the business of collecting seashells. It's a famous sermon he did many moons ago. Feel free to go Google it on your own. Collecting seashells for our own bored and tired glory just to get to the end and figure out that the king of glory is a little less interested in our seashell collected than we are. Right? Some of us are circling the same cul-de-sacs as the world is with no resolve to strain to get more of God, to exhaust ourselves in the single strategy of grasping and reaching, driving our marriages and our families towards a deeper experience with God. And if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church where our families are launched into mission, not babysat. Not babysat. Until we all die with a seashell collection, I guess. And I'm going to finish with my favorite step. What about when you dream and execute and sacrifice and strain and it looks like failure? What happens when you fail, right? Good question. When life is bearing off course, you had a solid red dot, everything was tight, you worked through a good strategy, you made deep sacrifices, everything was trucking until it was not. And now you can't get your hands back on the wheel and you're going in some weird direction, very different than what you had hoped for. Very simply... As we exhaust ourselves, we can also rest. You can do it at the same time. Rest, knowing that God will work in the middle of what feels like a failure. He's very good at that, by the way. He is very good at working his goodness, his beauty, his sovereignty, what feels like a total tire fire in our lives. If the Bible's clear on anything, it's clear on that. Is that God is in the middle of of our mess for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. So if your kids don't turn out perfect and your friends leave you and your career shifts and your marriage doesn't develop like you thought it would when you were standing at the altar, I just want you to remember that God had a view of that from time immemorial. God had eyes on that and he is working in you. In fact, he's carrying us through it. This is what it says in Philippians 2. Paul says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even the will you have to build a marriage. Listen, if I've said anything today and there's been a piece of you that thought, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go look at that blog. I'm going to start asking some of those questions. Yeah, I've been thinking the same. Even that is a gift to you. You didn't come up with that any more than I came up with that. God gave that to us. And even the will and the unction to step into it. That's how good he is to us. Right? The will to even want to build a family of purpose is gifted by God, carried by God. So you could feel free to exhaust yourself and rest at the same time. Be strong, be courageous, be sacrificial, and let God do as he sees fit. Right? No matter how much resolve and discipline we throw at our lives, we can't do anything apart from this grace that he gives to you and me. We are only where we are today by God's grace. And yet we strain, reaching for a goal marker anyway, because that's where our joy is found. That's where our soul is satisfied. It's the most beautiful place that we can exist in and nothing can compete with it. So keep pressing is what I'd say. No matter where I find you today in this, keep pressing. Keep straining, fasting, praying, forgetting what's behind you. Keep denying your personal things over what God is doing in your life. Keep bearing Keep enjoying, keep exhausting, keep resting. That's my admonition to you. 
And listen, if you're here or you're watching online right now and you are a skeptic or you're searching for this peace that I'm describing, this Jesus, maybe you've heard about Jesus, certainly you've heard about Jesus, but you're not sure what any of that means. I want to just go back and point one more time to John 12, just for your sake. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Right? The gospel calls for our authority over our own ambitions and aspirations. That's part of the luggage we leave at the foot of the cross. And if your struggle is anything like what mine was before I became a Christian, it was the what about me? What about me? I had plans, goals ambitions. But I want you to know that what your soul has always craved for since the time you were born, your hungers and your aspirations, your ambitions, it's not ever going to deliver it. Not if they are formatted after this world. You see, we we learned in Ecclesiastes when we moved through that book that a little bit of heaven was put in all of our hearts. And what, what 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 the poet is meaning right there is that we all have this subtle understanding of eternity and mortality and hunger and what we're looking for. And you were created to hunger and desire for a deep content and peaceful satisfaction. And what we'll do is we'll translocate that to the hopes of this world and hoping that this place will give it to us and it never does and it always lets us down. It's the idol of comfort. It's the idol of comfort. So there's a lot for us to repent of. If you're searching for Jesus, I would just submit to you that you would repent not for just sins but for being a sinner and turn to God who loves you, who loves you. And I think there's room for the rest of us to repent, too, for making the American dream our dream. Putting our aspirations and ambitions above everything else. For misspending our living, our thinking, our spending, our talents, our time, our treasure. Because we, too, can serve a God of comfort just as fast. And God is better than a life of collecting seashells. He's better. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this part of the service out before the team comes back up. We're going to take communion together. I actually didn't get one of those communion cups. Can somebody go and grab? Thanks, Kayla. Appreciate you, bud. Um, If you didn't grab a communion cup whenever you came in and you want one of those, oh, thanks, man. Is this yours? You want to take communion? All right. I don't want to take your moment from you, dude. So if you are a Christian and you're just a guest here, we we want to invite you into this moment. You don't have to be a part of Legacy Church to do this. But if you are not a Christian, I I would submit that you take Jesus instead of this. At least take him seriously today for what we've said, that he is the one that calls us upward. And he gives us this wreath of peace where we find our peace not through just the achievements of this world, but for the cross in his world. He calls us up to himself. Because of our performance, not that we turned in, but one that he turned in for us. So I just would submit that you consider that. And what we're doing here, I mean, this is, this is symbolic for sure. It's not magical, but it is spiritual, right? Okay, here he is. So if you need one of these, raise your hand. That good-looking guy will give you one. All right. This moment of communion where we celebrate as a family around a common banqueting table, which is a broken body and spilled blood, This is the pinnacle of God's mission, which is to be found glorious as he redeems a broken creation in the end of all ends. 
I think one thing that we can all agree on is God is never idling. He's never aimlessly bumping into things. He has a strategy, a sovereign purpose, a goal, a mission. He has a mission. The church is a, is a part of his mission. His plan was a cross, the place of strain, the place of reaching, and an empty tomb. And he has a red dot on the map for all of us. Ultimately, even beyond what we can craft here in this world, which is you and me together as a redeemed family with no sin, as we are found basking in the glory of God where every single second in eternity is better than the second that was right before it forever. That's what he's calling us to. That's our ultimate red dot. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time. As odd of a sermon as it is, really what we're talking about is just being serious with where we're going as families. Being serious about it. Of, of, of anything we, we don't want to be accidental or haphazard with, sloppy with, it's with our family and the direction that we go. You've uniquely marked all of our families, couples, individuals, with a distinct goal, calling, gift set, passions, convictions, history, education. You, you've made us up to do a certain thing, to be up to something. You've done that. And Lord, we celebrate not just that you've done that, but we celebrate the fact that you have created a red dot on the map, a destination, a place for us, totally despite us. Despite our best attempts to get it ourselves and to run away from it, you've given it to us as a grace to us. And you are very graceful. So Lord, we take this broken body in remembrance of what you've done for us and also with future hope Enjoy for what you're drawing us to. So we take this body in your name. And Lord, we take this juice not because it's just another box to check for a church, but because it's royal blood that was spilt out. You did turn into performance. You did pick up a cross. You, you carried the authority and the law on your back that you didn't break. But we did. And then you traded that righteousness with us. And so when we take this, we do that in remembrance of what you've given us and in hope that there will be one day that we take a communion with you again in the end of all ends where glory surrounds us. So go ahead and take the juice. And Lord, I pray for the souls that are watching, listening, whether it's today or another day. Father, that they're empty. Because their ambitions and their aspirations and their plans here are failing. Picking up seashells. Something of this world that has no eternal significance is where all of their hope is bound. And Lord, I know it's a, it's a, it's a grace to have those idols smashed. That they would see that as they come to nothing, there really is only one true place to find this satisfaction. This content peace. And that is in you. So I pray that you would work in their hearts, that your spirit would change their heart from one that cannot feel to one that can feel, and that you would grow your church today, that you would grow your church today. And Lord, we repent as a church for just being haphazard, not stewarding our family's direction, not stewarding our family's energy, 
our family's resources, even stewarding our family's dreams, not stewarding any of that, but just kind of spinning tires, making money, making babies. Lord, that's a point of repentance for us. So, Lord, we thank you for your great commission, and we are all eagerly on board with that. And down to a granular level, help us see where you have called us each specifically to make disciples who will make disciples in all places for people that would enjoy you and celebrate God for the rest of their lives. Amen and amen.